0: Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Pain and Rehab Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Dr. Michael Ray. I'm a chiropractor here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. I also work remotely with Barbell Medicine's Pain and Rehab Division. I'm joined by my two usual co-hosts, Dr. Michael Amato, who is up in Boston, and Dr. Derek Miles, who is now in Cincinnati, Ohio. How's it going, guys?
1: How's it going, Mike? It's
0: going well. Not too bad. It's, uh, what's today? Thursday? Thursday. And it doesn't matter. It's all a pandemic, so.
2: Yeah, I asked someone at work today what they were doing over the weekend, and they were like, "Is it time to talk about the weekend?" And I was like, "Yeah, it's Thursday." And they were like, oh,
0: "Okay, yeah, I guess you're right." We talk about it on like Monday. Yeah. The, <laughs> the weird thing is, like, I started saying the day of the weeks wrong, and like people just stopped correcting me. So I think collectively everyone's just like, "Yeah, it doesn't doesn't matter anymore." Just one really long Monday. Yes. How many days are left in 2020? Like 600. Yeah. And they're all Mondays. Yeah. So, but it's good. Um, What's going on with you guys? Anything new? Uh, We were just talking
2: about, I got a coffee roaster in the mail. That's, uh, that's, That's my big news. So I'll be roasting coffee, which takes me to the next step of my obsessive habit before I get bored of it.
0: Before you, like, achieve your final form of of coffee kind of sewer?
2: Yeah. You know, everyone needs to be caffeinated
0: despite what's going on,
2: you know, in the outside events. So I think it's important.
0: Do you have to sort, like, how how to, so walk me through this process. Do you, like, have to source your beans? Do you go to, like, Amazon and get some beans uh, unroasted and then roast them? The literal cool. Amazon. Yeah, I don't yes.
2: do, Am- I'm trying <laughs> to limit my Amazon usage these days. But, uh Cody Masaraka hooked me up with this website. It's called Berman Coffee Traders, and they have all these, like, they have a few blends, but, like, a ton of single-origin green coffee beans. And it'll tell you, like, what the flavor notes are and how it changes depending on the roast level. So I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just going to, like, go in first, figure it out as I go along, make mistakes, and then hopefully figure out something, which is a good analogy for this whole running podcast we're doing today
0: yeah it's pretty much my mantra for life i I imagine like how you're doing it's a bit more accurate than how i previously tried to roast beans which was like in a skillet uh with a spatula and and just kind of like move them around until they look like they're at the roast (laughs) that i want them to be at
2: yeah that's legit though i i just like i'm like cheating and bought like a machine that does four ounces at a time
0: so it's all right
1: Derek, anything new with you? Another day, another dollar, man. Just trying to figure out what my uh, next cooking with adhesions episode is going to be on.
0: I, I am looking forward to like, your eventual YouTube channel that I just keep hoping becomes a thing.
1: Uh, it's, I just don't think I'm quite pretty enough for that, man. I'm, I'm definitely not a pretty face. <laughs> well,
0: the problem with YouTube is as well, like you have to upgrade sound equipment and videography equipment. And from my understanding, people are pretty critical of YouTubers.
1: Um, maybe I'll just do the binging with Babish style and just go from the neck down. There you go. Hope for the best. and Just show off my fancy knives and uh, cutting boards and go from there. Just get a really nice apron. You'll be, you'll be right. As they say, all the tools in my toolbox.
0: Yeah. Your <laughs> mythical toolbox somewhere out there in the universe.
2: Well. And, uh, Mike, you just moved clinics, right? Or are
0: well, in the process of doing that? I, I am in, like, the midst of it all. Like, in the... Uh, it's not bad. It's, I don't want to say the worst of it, but it's just a lot, like a lot of moving parts between, um, like trying to see patients at my old location, but half of my stuff is at my new location and like bouncing around Derek, actually, thankfully him and Charlie Dixon and Cameron Clouser came up this past weekend and like helped me move a lot of heavy stuff that I didn't want to move by myself. And then, uh, Derek and uh, Cameron built out two platforms for me, which I'm very thankful for because I had no idea what I was doing.
2: You need strong friends. That's what it comes down to.
0: It really does. Yeah. Which I guess is a good segue into running. And, <laughs> and yeah, I went there. Um, <laughs> so this podcast, we are talking all about running. And, you know, I, I, I run uh, when I need to for conditioning, but I'm certainly not like what someone would consider an avid runner. Like I'm not doing 5, 10Ks, half marathons, marathons, stuff like that. Uh, But I do work with some runners remotely uh, as well as at clinic, and I think you guys do as well. Uh, model, you certainly sound like maybe a little more regularly. Um, But I think for the most part, you're going to lead this. I'm just going to kind of hang out and have some conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm going to turn it over to you at this point. Thank you. Yeah, um, I want to preface this by saying, like,
2: obviously... We exist under the domain of barbell medicine, not running medicine. Um, but, you know, we all have experience, like, participating in running in some degree, whether it was, like, conditioning for sport or, you know, doing it as a sport earlier in our lives. I believe Derek did some track at some point. Um, yeah, way back in the day. Way back in the day. We, we won't say what year that was. Um, but, yeah, just to preface that, you know, we try not to take too much of a authority stance on anything, but definitely today uh, I want to come at this from a, you know, still my still very much the student when it comes to learning about like running programming and rehab and training, obviously being in Boston, I'm surrounded by a pretty big running culture. Um, but yeah, uh, I've had the opportunity to work closely with another colleague, uh, Chris Herbs, who works at Outer clinic. He's a running coach and more of an elite athlete himself. So he's helped a lot. And um, I have someone who programs for me. Uh, so, shout out to Melanie for helping me while I'm programming. So, I think that's important, always having, like, that network that can, you can learn from. And if people are really interested in, like, more of a deep dive and more of, like, competitive elite running, there's plenty of great resources out there, you know, especially for clinicians to learn from. So, like, people like Chris Johnson, Nathan Carlson, Rich Willie, and his, rehab, uh, his, like, research team. So, you can put more links to that in the show notes so that's my preface um and then i think the big discussion today will be more geared towards your novice runner someone who's starting you know wanting to get some more physical activity in their lives um trying to meet some of those guidelines i think it's especially uh, unique with covid over the last you know nine months a lot of people have moved to doing more like outdoor activity since indoor activity may be limited. Um, So I know of a lot of people who have picked up running just to do something. Um, And definitely some of the, this is also geared towards people who have have been running at a little more recreational pace and, you know, don't have big aspirations of winning any kind of big races. So that's kind of setting the stage there. And obviously you can take these principles and kind of scale it higher if you're looking to get a little bit more competitive.
1: And I think really,
2: Really? sorry, go ahead.
1: I think even here, though, it's important to mention that the heuristic is get good at the basics first. And there tends to be this extrapolation, whether it be in resistance training or endurance training, that we see the elite athletes doing the fancy stuff and we automatically assume that's what we all should be doing. It just turns out that a lot of the boring drills don't make for nearly as good social media fodder as Mm – weird stuff that likely like is just icing on the cake to the overall training paradigm.
2: Definitely. And I like, yeah, we're going to try to paint probably a lot of analogies, to resistance training. And funny enough, I think of a, a lot of the programming that I'm doing now resembles, um, more of like what elite runners do. So that's the interesting part because the elite runners are probably doing more basic things than you think. So you don't need to be as fancy as, uh, some of you know, of what you're perceiving from the general public and culture of running.
0: Yeah, I think probably one of the big uh, takeaways from this podcast today will be the, the stuff we talk about programming and like what it means to manipulate variables uh, for running specific, which has a lot of parallels to manipulating variables for resistance training. Yeah. Cool. So
2: let's dive into maybe some common running injuries. And if you guys want to chime into on kind of like what you see in terms of remote work and clinical work. But I think a lot of this we've kind of touched on in previous episodes, they just, you know, present a little differently in terms of how activity affects these injuries. So, you know, I think a big, uh, a big thing that we often come across of in um, the running world is like tendinopathies. And this is where, We've talked about tendinopathy in the past, obviously, Um, but in like the running world, I think this is where you get to see a lot of the terminology where you'll see like overuse or overtraining injuries. And this is usually tied to a presentation that seems like tendinopathy. So what's common, at least in my world, that I I see at at the clinic is Achilles, patellar, uh, proximal hamstring. Um, I don't see too many people... With like posterior tib but posterior tip tendinopathy can be pretty common, and then gluteal tendinopathy. So like lateral hip pain, which can be a little bit confusing too for people to kind of um, dice out what they're dealing with. But do you guys see anything beyond that with uh, some of your work?
1: Yeah, In I've seen. You... Go ahead, Derek. Occasionally you'll catch like an obscure tendinopathy, but for the most part, like the overall heuristic of it is the same across the board. The only one that I would say tends to be a little bit more problematic is the posterior tib tendinopathy, because in each of the instances, when we start talking about like heavy, slow resistance training or, or some of the initial dosing that goes with them, posterior tib tends to be one of the ones that's a little bit harder to isolate out of it in pretty much across the board we do tend to move towards more isolation work for tendinopathy in the treatment paradigm itself and there you know you'll see some of the caveats like uh working on some calf raises while holding the crossball between your heels or Mm -hmm. you know tennis ball pick whatever round object you want um and just getting the sufficient load across it can sometimes prove a little bit more of a challenge but it still comes back to like the sufficient load side of the equation in making it difficult enough or challenging enough to where we actually get those adaptations we're going for.
2: Yeah. I think, um, like I've had a recent interest in Achilles tendinopathy cause I'm kind of going through a little bit of a bout of it myself and just taking a little bit of a deeper dive into the role of the soleus and its performance during running. Um, so I think that ends up being a little bit more unique for running versus maybe something else like a like a jumper um, in like more of a power sport or basketball. Um, so I tend to tend to see a little bit of a uniqueness in that in terms of the running world, and I think we'll probably have a bigger discussion on resistance training and how this correlates to tendinopathy because I think this is where we can probably put in a lot of our heavy, slow resistance um, emphasis into, like, not only treating the tendinopathy but kind of building out a broader program to improve injury risk reduction and overall running performance if they're not already doing some kind of heavy, slow training in their programming.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say is for this cohort specifically, uh, a lot of times, like, they're just not resistance training whatsoever. And so we see these kind of overload or quote-unquote overuse uh, issues pop up like tendinopathy and it's like they're not doing any type of resistance training so it's a really good opportunity to be like hey you know here's how we can work through this issue via isolation work and compound movements as well with resistance training and then here's how it should fit into your long-term program which uh, Derek has actually done a, a good job with a series on this it's on our website that you can go check out uh, Derek
1: what's that series called? It is Strength Training for Endurance Athletes. It's a three-part series. It was based off of a talk that myself, Brittany Berry, and Josh Barabbas did at Combined Sections Meeting, the APTA's big conference a few years ago.
2: Yeah, I was in attendance.
0: Yeah, so I would definitely, like, check that out for even more of a deeper dive than what we'll have an opportunity to talk about today. Mm -hmm.
2: And, yeah, I just see that as a good entry point for a lot of – uh, injured runners into implementing some kind of strength training into their programming. Um, Cause typically if they're coming to see me or um, they've bounced around a little bit, I'll see that as usual, the usual lack in terms of what they've tried in terms of treatment. So
0: do you guys find um, buy-in is difficult uh, as far as like, even once we've worked through say a tendonopathic situation, do you find it's difficult to get buy-in with long-term resistance training with this cohort?
2: Hmm. Depends.
0: I I think, and I talked about this before,
2: I think some of the, at least like in my physical clinic, I get a little bit of a boost in buy-in based on now word of mouth, but also like the way the clinic looks and what people are doing around me. And I think a lot of it just comes from like how you build trust, and explain your rationale. You know, I think this is where I'll put on a little bit more of a heavy education on what we're doing, like, anatomically and and physiologically Um, in terms of, like, getting the tendon to tolerate more load by making it stiffer through strength training. And I think, like, I can paint that in a simple way enough that they can understand that they haven't done that yet and how it could lead to a better performance and we don't need to you know be doing what they think is like bodybuilding or something you
1: know there, there's also the component of this though of being able to speak the language of the athlete and especially in the sports realm I, I think there really is imperative and we've already alluded to a few times that we're going to draw in a lot of analogy between running training and resistance training and I think athletes tend to accept those analogies or, or better as well because it makes sense to them and it's not necessarily once again that uh, you know I need a endurance athlete on a four day a week, split with back offsets. It, yeah. it is the simplicity is key side of it. And I think making that point of emphasis is really imperative because a lot of times we want this, you know, overly complex 15 exercises with three sets of 10 each. And you look at it and you're like, well, there's 600 reps in your 45 minute workout. That's not resistance training. That's endurance training. Mm -hmm. and being able to frame the conversation as such really tends to help out a lot along the way. And then I think some of it too, it's most of us that are resistance training or endurance training with any type of frequency, there is a little bit of like an addiction component there. Like it becomes part of our identity. It's something that we want to do all the time. And part of the reason that we like to do it is because we see progress and the beauty of when you first start resistance training is you tend to make a lot of progress really fast. Mm-hmm. And if you can take these athletes, especially if they've suffered an injury and they're shut down from training for a little while, like or, or having to cross train via cycling or something else, and you give them something else that they can hone their skills and, and their desire to work out with, at least you have temporarily replaced what's going on. And I think that's really good for kind of facilitating the buy-in out of this as well.
2: Yeah. I I usually bring up the term like at least minimum effective dose in this population. So we're trying to do like just enough to really push the needle and it's not going to detract from your weekly training. It's only going to be additive.
0: Yeah. Especially for those who are specifically wanting to be runners, like that is their primary exercise modality of choice. Then, you know, it's, it's, breaking down any of those perceived barriers, which oftentimes is like, I don't want this detracting away from my running performance, or I don't want to gain excessive muscle mass. That's going to make me heavier. And I feel like it's more difficult to go run at the pace I want to. So it's like having those conversations about this is more of just maximizing your running performance with some resistance training. And then especially for those who I have compete in running, it's, you know, changing the parameters of resistance training, like frequency volume and intensity based on their running schedules so if they're getting ready for a race or not. It's how are we altering that dosage to not further detract away from the primary focal point of training.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think later later on too, we'll have some discussion about like concurrent training and if yes. you're more of a lifter than a runner. And you know, does is running gonna detract from my lifting. And at the end of the day, I think the benefits you get from both far outweigh any possible detractions. Unless yeah. you are very elite in one direction or the other, which is not usually the case, unless you are working with very elite athletes, that's a different story. Yeah.
1: But in the same regard, like we need to be, or always kind of go back to this, I don't want you to be an unathletic rower. I don't want you to be an unathletic lifter. Like it should be predicated upon at least possessing some athletic principles outside of the realm with which your focus primarily. And if you're a runner and, you know, carrying your groceries in is difficult, like probably need some things to change there. Mm -hmm. And and like, but I also think sometimes we all like even the three of us on this call are tend to kind of overestimate our prowess. It's one of those, like, you don't know what good is until you're around good. Mm -hmm. And A lot of people likely consider themselves runners, consider themselves lifters, and that's awesome, but the focus should be more on some of this, like, fundamental athletic principles versus just honing in on, I want to have the biggest bench around, or I want to crack 20 minutes on a 5K.
2: Mm -hmm. I think just, yeah, not overestimating that ability and... (laughs) You know, like if, yeah, if you're a hardcore lifter, but, you know, you're out of breath walking up one flight of stairs, there's probably some low-hanging fruit that you want to do to have that long-term uh, longevity.
0: What do you guys think? Um, it's kind of like the big contributor to these overuse kind of situations like teninopathies, because I kind of see it where I have my folks who weren't running at all previously, and like, I went from zero to three days of running or, you know, no miles to let's shoot for like 25 to 30 miles per week. But then I've also had my folks where they've been, you know, runners for a long time, but they've been dealing with these kind of chronic issues for years. And so it's this consistent kind of overload. Do you guys see similar things or other things?
2: I'll probably see both. Um, you know, whether it's like that too much too soon after not doing, you know, enough for too long kind of a mentality. Um, and I feel like that's a little bit easier to control for because then you can just kind of kick back and restart. Whereas the more um, seasoned runner is probably going to need a little bit more manipulation of training variables. And, you know, we can, we can jump into that discussion right now if you want because I think, like, that's probably going to be the big takeaway today is, like, how do you actually manipulate the training variables? Because I think there is more discussion on intensity and volume than people probably realize. And I think yeah. from a resistance training perspective, at least people who listen to Barbell Medicine know that there's a lot of things you can do to alter volume and intensity.
0: Do, um, you, do you think, um, just looking at this list of, of calming running injuries, you have listed which we've already been talking about, and then things like plantar foot pain, patellofemoral pain syndrome, um, anterior knee pain, lateral hip pain, quote-unquote chin splints. Mm. Um, Do you think, uh, just to kind of blanket generalize this, and then we can get into nuance, do you think a lot of those situations are directly related to programming issues more than anything?
2: I think it's a great place to start. And if there's something very glaringly obvious then I will start there and then look into more, and this is like what we all do, right? But look into what's maybe more individually lacking from a maybe like a peak force or a peak power perspective when we look at more of like individual limbs. So like if they're having patellar femoral pain syndromes, like symptoms, like do we think we can increase their quad strength? But yeah. that's going to take, what, four to six weeks to see a significant change just from a strength training perspective so like what are we doing in the meantime so i think you can't I, I really think you need to start the programming and go from there even if they are working with a coach and they've been doing it for a long time it's just like powerlifting or weightlifting. you're gonna have to structure the constraints of the program to allow for whatever adaptations you're gonna want to see even if if it's just the programming you're changing you're gonna need time for it to kind of settle in and,
1: I would even go a little bit further than that, because while I do agree that a lot of it is programming, what you see a lot in endurance athletes is some, uh, I'll call them comorbidities that would fall into the like uh, nutrition problems, relative energy Mm -hmm. deficiency syndrome. And those can be big contributors to development of a lot of these and a lot of uh, rehab specialists in general just aren't as comfortable talking about nutrition or even talking about sleep for that matter. But in this cohort, when you're starting to look at, you know, a high prevalence of things like a bone stress injury, uh, that's as much of a nutrition question quite often as it is anything to do with the actual programming itself. And it's being able to have those uncomfortable conversations sometimes because there is you know, a a certain psychological body dysmorphia component to it, sometimes that you really have to get in the weeds on. But if you want to solve a lot of these or address a lot of these issues, then you have to be comfortable having that conversation. Yeah. And that Uh, would
2: be like the one big caveat or uniqueness to this population is like the bone stress injury and the energy deficiency that you're probably going to see less of in the more resistant sport athlete.
0: We we tend to have a lot of like side conversations building up to these uh, recorded discussions. So we kind of talked about bone stress injuries uh, off the record um, just to give the audience an update. This is a very involved conversation in which like we could do an entire podcast on BSI. So we're going to hit the highlights uh, today, but maybe in the future we could do something much more involved. Um, Before we get too far into this, Derek, do you want to talk a little bit more about relative energy deficiency syndrome, just to kind of give it some context to the audience?
1: So... Relative energy deficiency syndrome is the evolution away from what was originally the female athlete triad, and it was originally thought that a lot of these types of problems were specific to the female athlete, where you're talking about low energy availability, um, amenorrhea or menstrual disturbance, and then low bone mineral density. But what we found um, in especially the last 10 years, there's been a lot more research on male endurance athletes as well. And we've seen kind of the evolution of the same type thing where relative energy deficiency syndrome, there is that low bone mineral density. There is that low energy availability in people who are, undernourishing or underfueled, it tends to be more the vernacular that gets tossed around um, are more predisposed to this. It's, this isn't a gender specific thing. And, and like we've seen with a lot of the conversations on like male and female responses to resistance training, it, it turns out we respond the same. It was just that this started out with a just gender specific cohort and then it's really branched out to show that it is, basically a a large portion of endurance athletes that are actually exposed to this.
0: And that's really recent. I think it was the most recent IOC position statement on this was like, Hey, we really need to make sure we're starting to expand these discussions into our male cohort.
1: Yes. I mean, you're probably talking in the last eight years. Yeah. Yeah. So how does this just
0: so uh, for context to the audience, how does this fit with bone stress injuries?
1: So there's a lot to this, and you essentially have to look at it as you're you're constantly adapting to the stress that your body is exposed to, and you have to have a nutrition component there in order to really be properly fueled for the demands you're imposing upon your body. There is some research, especially in the adolescent population, which is obviously where my background more is now that looks at uh, swimmers and endurance athletes versus what they called multi-directional sport athletes and what they found was that people or athletes who participated in just swimming and running had a higher likelihood of having a low bone mineral density than their multi-directional sport peers so you automatically see a little bit of a shift towards exposure to some of these injuries and, and risk just as a result of the sport but the conversation's likely much more complex than that because what you see a lot in these instances is that athletes are chronically underfueled, and this tends to kind of create this other cascade of not having good sleep patterns, which we also know is integral in order to really have good recovery. So, out of that, like you start seeing this manifestation of relative energy deficiency syndrome where it's decreased muscle strength, decreased performance, and endurance, too. So, this is actually one of the signs. Like, if you see an athlete coming in and they're used to cranking out six minute miles and all of a sudden, you know, they're having trouble holding 730. Like probably time to really start talking about some nutrition conversations there. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So this is much more like, because we were talking about programming for the other kind of common issues that we see in this population. But this is much more like it needs to be a holistic approach, if you will, where we are, you know, we're looking for these things as well. Should we be concerned with this? Do we need to talk about what nutritional intake is like? Are they fueling adequately, and then sleep patterns as well? How is that related? And then uh, something we obviously on the regular talk about is psychosocial coping skills. So like, how are they managing stress, life, training, and so on and so forth?
2: Yeah, it's likely going to need a team approach uh, if properly diagnosed.
0: Um, yeah.
2: And so, like having a team, which is you know easier said than done, is important. Um, and then just having it on your radar and looking for these clinical presentations, um, from the energy deficiency side, but also from like the symptomology side, uh, can be a little confusing. So again, like we could do a whole episode on this, yes. but it's going to need to present a little differently than, you know, a tendinopathy. Um, and I did a recent, deep, more deep dive into like femoral neck, stress frac- mm-hmm. uh, stress fractures and it can get pretty complicated with the type of fracture, but most of what I've seen in the literature is pointing towards. Um, does we have a pretty good take on like how tendinopathy reacts to load, and so you'll often see that kind of pain in the beginning of activity, warm up period feels better at better in the middle, and then you might see like that pain pattern increase towards the end of the activity and then you might see like that delayed onset too right like it's not it's not too uncommon to have pain the next day if you flared up um your tendinopathy symptoms but i feel like with the bone stress injuries what you'll see is that more gradual progression of symptoms throughout the activity and then it really responds well in terms of symptoms to unloading whereas Mm -hmm. a tendinopathy would not respond well to unloading
0: at least, not like when you try to go reload. It's it's more kind of consistent and constant symptomatology, I would think, in bone stress injuries versus tendinopathy. Yeah,
2: and so it, and it gets tricky, and imaging is hard too, from what I've seen from the studies too, and how it can be easily missed on X-ray. And there's a yeah, yeah,
0: and then there's common sites like you you mentioned femoral neck, and then there's also metatarsals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think tibia would be another location in which like. We may be wanting to look deeper and order imaging in these cases and, and maybe more invasive advanced versus just x-ray. Um, so we could easily turn this into a whole clinical podcast on like managing this. There's, there's more nuance here. There's also uh, just like a real brief conversation because I want to hear Derek get fired up. But uh, where do stress reactions fit into this conversation?
1: What do you mean by that?
0: I I mean, I don't know. It's just a phrase that I hear tossed around quite regularly that someone presents with pain in X location, and it's labeled as a stress reaction.
1: Uh, Everything's a stress reaction. I mean, it's, you want to get me fired up, you you did something to stimulate a a stress reaction. (laughs) The, The real question is, like, when do we need to act upon it? And The study that I've wanted to see for a long time in relation to this and mildly off topic is take a group of adolescent female volleyball players and take an MRI of their spine two weeks before volleyball season and then three weeks into volleyball season and see how many stress reactions we have. Because, you know... you have this huge imposed demand that, you know, they haven't been in defensive position for a long time uh, and you're going to have a quote unquote stress reaction, but it still comes down. Like you can almost, and this is way oversimplified, but I think it does hold some weight. You start looking at it in terms of what tendinopathy is tends to be more of a, is demand imposed upon the tissue sufficient in order to adapt to it. Whereas with things like bone stress injury, it, it's more as, as much as, I guess I should say energy demand present for the training load that's imposed upon it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it, it, it's way more, you know, nuanced than that to use the trademarked barbell mess and term. But when you're starting to talk about things like stress reactions, Cool. At what point are you going to call it that? Like, and really, a lot of times it's like, when do we need to intervene upon it? And I think by and large, what you would hear is, you know, if someone is consistently having some symptomology while they're training, we need to change. But the, the other side of the coin, and I'm sure someone could make a very good case against what I'm going to say, is. The initial reaction from clinicians a lot of times when someone is diagnosed with a bone stress injury is let's modify weight bearing for six to eight weeks. Yeah. Well, then we've removed all stress to that tissue. And, you know, I've never seen a bone get more dense by not loading it in some fashion. So at what point do we need to complete the unload versus what point should we start changing how we are loading? Because, you know, we still use load here as a broad form, but load is still contingent upon the variables in intensity and time under tension. And, you know, all the things we talk about and it, load imposed from low load cyclic running versus, you know, high load repetitious resistance training are two entirely different activities. So, do we need to take away all load? Do we need to subset into one form of load? Do we need to change the original that the athlete was being exposed to? You know, there's a lot of ways to cut that.
0: Yeah, I think like the idea of when and how to intervene is really the keys to those conversations, and um, that's just way beyond. Like we could we could spend easily hours talking about bone stress injuries. So I don't want to get us too far off track. Uh, Maybe that's something we'll do in the future, but it's, as Derek said, it is nuanced and it's about um, how do we change loading to the area? I think it comes back to like, if you're symptomatic, then obviously we probably need to change something without necessarily getting too far into the weeds on uh, the meaning of the something that we have found on imaging.
2: Yeah. And it's going to need to be specific to the type of stress fracture, like we talked about since there's different different types and different areas of the body that may be, may need more conservative versus more aggressive, uh, unloading. So.
0: so I guess this is a good segue into your next point, Amato.
2: Yes. The programming. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I think again, like if our average listener is someone who lifts and follows our programming, we know we, we talk a lot about, uh, how to auto regulate and how to change volume and intensity and make training more consistent, more enjoyable, and still have the progressive elements to it that will, you know, induce changes. So, you know, we talk about dose-dependent relationship to exercise and how, to a degree, you know, increasing your dosage over time is probably a good goal. So with running, I think there's a little bit of... Uh, maybe a lack of knowledge or a, or an increase to the accessibility of it where the programming seems to get overlooked at least like in the novice if you're talking to like an elite runner this is going to be very abc 123 but we can start with volume i think that's a, an important place to start so there's actually a good article that came out like last month uh, i think it was Rich Willie's team uh, yeah max Paquette is the lead author And they talked about moving beyond weekly distance as a way of quantifying training load in runners. So this was something I changed with my own programming this year for myself. And a couple of people I'm helping um, with their running is getting away from weekly mileage as a volume metric. And I think if you could take away maybe one thing about programming from this whole, a podcast would be to move from mileage to time if you're new to running uh for a couple of reasons i think when you're looking at running from a load standpoint you're essentially looking at f- foot contacts like how many times your foot hits the ground you're gonna be absorbing some load and so how how long it takes me to run two miles is a lot longer than how long it takes my coworker, Chris Herbs, to run two miles. And we're talking, like, a quantity of maybe, like, you know, 300% time. So that's a totally different training stress to both of us. And to say, like, oh, you run two miles at an easy pace, and you run two miles at an easy pace, you're talking totally two different volumes. And so when you add a duration, or you you fix it by a duration again, for someone who's new to this, it's going to probably be beneficial because then they can restrict their volume to what you want them to do or what you want yourself to do. And funny enough, the physical activity guidelines are by time, right? We're talking 150 minutes of moderate aerobic activity a week. It's not, you know, 10 miles of running a week. That's uh, been put forward by the, by the uh, powers that be. So I'm a big fan of time. Um, obviously, there's conversation to be had if there's a race coming up or if they're an actual competitive runner and you want to quantify, uh, mileage, but even based upon that from this article, they're talking about you could even dive a little bit deeper beyond mileage. And you're looking at like the intensity plus mileage. Um, but do you have anything to add to the volume
0: discussion there? So uh, just so I heard you correctly as well. Um, you feel as though, at least to me, time allows for more auto regulation. So, as opposed to saying "go run a specific distance of two miles," go run for ten minutes, and maybe you get, you know, a mile and a half or something like that, depending on the individual. But you can auto regulate pacing and intensity with a specific time versus mandating they go do a specific distance. Yeah, and if they're if you're new to it, your abilities are going to change,
2: uh, either either dramatically over the course of like a year or if they don't then you're not getting caught up in I need to run more mileage then we I think we're able to tweak the volume a little bit more finely. So with resistance training often what we do is like if we want to add more volume what do we do like add a set here or there maybe tack on a new accessory But we're not making like dramatic changes where it's like, oh, last week you did four sets of six of squats, so you know this week we're gonna do eight sets of six. And people will do that with their running training, where they're, all right, last week I ran two miles and it felt okay. I'm gonna go up to three miles this week. You just increased your volume by fifty percent. And if you continue to do that, like how sustainable is is that? Because maybe you're able to get away with it for the first six weeks of running, but what about the next like six months of running? Um, yeah. And what I'm trying to get across with people, I guess, is like keeping it enjoyable and preventing this burnout from I'm not making progress or I'm starting to develop symptoms because I'm not tolerating the training load as well as I thought I would.
1: When if you look at a lot of the running research on performance, there's a lot of very low intensity training plugged into programs, and. I have a, a friend who is very much into the endurance side of it. And he always has the adage that most people's easy isn't easy enough. And most people's hard isn't hard enough. Yep. And instead, everything kind of gets pulled towards the middle to where, you know, it is hard to do something at a threshold pace for a long time because you're like, well, I can crank out. But that's the same analogy that we use as the person returning to weightlifting that knows what they used to be able to do. And they automatically want to go chuck that on the bar. So yeah. I do think time is very integral here, but even out of it, you know, once you start getting into the intermediary runner or even the advanced runner, sometimes time is really still the variable that you want to focus on. But it may be let's go run eight miles at uh, seven thirty pace instead of a six twenty pace. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So and- we, there's just layers to how we can kind of cap that on there. So we may be getting the distance, but it, you know, we're going at a much lower pace through the entire training session itself.
0: I have a question that I don't think any of us have talked about. So I'm curious to you guys' response on this and it's on the spot. So it's organic, um, which is always fun, but I've worked with several runners uh, over the years and something that uh, has been interesting to hear them say is some paradigms out there claim. uh, And I really hear this with marathon runners is I don't ever have to run marathon distance in my training protocol to be prepared to go run a marathon. What are you guys' thoughts on that, and have you heard that before?
1: How many times you max out before you uh, go to a powerlifting competition?
0: Well, it depends. I mean, there's a lot of top sets for sure. I mean, a lot of one at eights that probably turn into higher for other folks.
1: Yeah, but a one-at-eight isn't a, a max so, you know, it's it's analogous to that as far as I'm concerned out of it. I, I see no reason to sit there and try and crank 26 beforehand. It really is, you know, to go back to it, trusting the process out of it. Yeah, and I think.
2: Yeah, go ahead, sir.
1: I, I think even within that, like when you're talking about more skilled marathon competitors like you're almost better off if you know your course like if you know there's a hill at mile 10 or mile 15 or whatever like trying to plan out your strategy versus just trying to crank out mileage for the sake of mileage
2: yeah and i think i think what's even more apparent is not even the volume with that with that race but the intensity as well um so a marathon is obviously different than maybe like 10k um you'll do a lot of marathon pacing running for a marathon training you just won't hit that volume for that race but if you're doing let's say like a half marathon or 10k training you're not gonna run a half marathon at that intensity and that distance in your training but you're gonna be doing that in those intensities and short bouts which will probably lend itself to the intensity part of this equation which Derek already mentioned so it's like yeah, like trusting that your training overload will allow yourself to like then see, where, see what your performance is on that day because that day you're going to give like an RPE 10 performance.
0: So I like the one to eight analogy that Derek gave. I think it's a good perspective to look at it. Could you give context to what that would mean for running though?
2: Yeah. So if we're going to move into, so again, like I, I like doing time for volume, I think. What it allows now is looking at how much intensity are we doing per week. Because um, the tricky part with running is like if you run one mile at an RPE. Um, so caveat, we're going to use the 1 to 10 scale. Um, I, I think a lot of lifters probably, at least who follow us, don't pay attention to anything below a 6 on the RPE scale. But running, they use the modified Borg scale pretty extensively. So you're looking at one through 10. Um, What I'm going to anchor as like a three would be a slow jog that you can comfortably have a whole conversation at. a four is what people think of as more of like a run where you're starting to like maybe breathe a little bit. And then you're going to keep going up until you're like, I would say the six out of 10 is more of your tempo threshold pace, which Uh, Derek alluded to, was like that middle zone where it's starting to get more stressful. Um, People can usually only keep that up for about 20, 30 minutes before they start to slow down. And then you're looking at seven, eight, nine, which is more of like your sprint kind of territory. So that being said, which is kind of like a crash course on the (laughs) for running. And uh, if you honestly, if you just look up like running RP on Google, you'll, this will come up. Um, if you run 1 mile at an rp3 and 1 mile at an rp8 you're going to do one in a shorter amount of time obviously and one in a longer amount of time so comparing 1 mile of volume to 1 mile of volume doesn't give you a good volu- doesn't give you an, act- an accurate like how much time did i spend doing intense work versus how much time did i spend doing easy work
0: so i think in the context of like a marathon just to kind of like further get into the weeds on this what would be where would you push this? Where what would is twenty miles sufficient in training? Is that considered sufficient volume to mimic going to run a marathon and doing that at what would be you because you obviously you probably can't do a seven to nine RP marathon, but a six sustained, is that sufficient? Generally what I see in
2: terms of those anchorings is like your five K is gonna be like a power race where you're gonna be running really hard. And so you'll be in those, like, RP 7 to 8 regions. Uh, More of your 10K to half marathon. You're going to be running probably an RP 6 the the entire time. Um, And then your marathon is probably going to be more of, like, your RP 5. And you'll have a little kick at the end. So, when that comes with what I mean by all of this, when it for comes the to the average like, runner,
1: just yeah, for the, yeah, this
2: yeah, is yeah, like
1: <laughs> very clear on that. at the elite level. Like, if you look at the pace, I believe, like, once you get to 5k, the mile pace between a 5k and a marathon doesn't really change, but like one or two seconds a mile. So we're certainly talking about the beginner and intermediary pace for this example before some of my distance running friends stroke out. At yeah, um, yeah.
2: We're just tripping over shit right now. <laughs> so coming back to a single at eight, if someone was new to running, I would have at least 80% of their week at an RP three to four. And so what that means is like, you should be able to talk throughout the entire run. It honestly feels like you could do that pace for an hour at least even if you're new to it so this is where like walking comes into play like i think uh undervaluing the um benefit of like fitness walking for someone who's new to running uh shouldn't be overlooked because what what'll happen is like everyone is fast out of the gate and then they're huffing and puffing by the time they're like 10 minutes in so being able to keep a slow enough pace where you can talk throughout might not be achievable for everyone. So having some walking bouts in between could be approachable for someone.
0: So kind of interval style, like I want you to go try to run for a minute, walk for two or yeah. something like that. And, and making sure that one
2: minute of running is actually easy. Cause I think yeah, what ends up happening is intensity. like, yeah, cause that's hard. It's like, could you do this for an hour? Like if you, you know, like could you, and that's hard for someone to figure out, but like, Again, another big thing I get if someone's going to take something away from this podcast is like run slower and then run slower than that. You know, like run slower than you think. Like I'm legit. I've only been running for consistently, I would say, in the last six months. And I I'd run previously in my life, but I kind of picked it up more recently again. I'm out there doing like 12 to 13 minute miles. Like I'm not like embarrassed to say that. It is really, really slow, but I stay in that RP range and my heart rate reflects that. Um, That's
0: what you're measuring with is is heart rate.
2: Yeah, I'm using heart rate to kind of anchor the RP a bit. Um, So I can get into that a little bit in a second.
0: So, again,
2: kind of going back to the original question, what would a single at eight look like? If they're doing 80% of their volume that week in terms of time at that RP three to four, I might give them like a 10 minute tempo run at an RP six. And that's your that's your single at eight
0: maybe for a time factor
2: yeah or I might give them a useful strategy too is uh, these uh, kind of exercises called strides where you uh, and I got this from my coworker Chris and this is pretty popular in like in terms of the running world but um like thirty seconds of tempo work followed by thirty seconds of um, very slow jogging so you get some like exposure to moving your feet quicker. And then you go back down. So you don't really get a chance to really, like, drive up your heart rate and get too winded. And you might do, like, five or six strides. And you could do that, like, at the end of your slow run. So I might start peppering that in. It's also, it also feels good for the person if they're, like, just slogging and getting a lot of these, like, slow miles in. It makes it a little, feels a little bit more athletic. It feels a little more fun. And, you know, just kind of centering it around, like, that, chunk of easy work allows the fast work to be hard enough and kind of getting back to what Derek was saying, I would say most people, if they're not thinking about programming, probably just run in that moderate zone and don't keep their easy work easy enough. And then th- that, that doesn't allow them to make their hard work harder.
0: So I think because um, a lot of this can get lost on maybe some of our general audience, that's the, resistance training focused folks who are like, well, I just do GPP twice a week. Like where do I fit in this conversation? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. I think valuing the easy work in this scenario, because if you're using running as a means to increase physical activity and get some extra conditioning, um, you know, like your GPP work on top of your, uh, about your training, running easier and slower is going to be easier to recover from. And it gives you like that stimulus that's actually going to, you know, decrease cardiac risk factors that we see in some of the literature. Um, and it's going to be more sustainable, I think. I mean, if you if you like doing more of a high intensity interval training workout, I would say if you're new to running, you probably just want to do that on the bike for now. <laughs> and then as you get better at running, you can do more like interval work, uh, you know, if you want to do laps around the track. But, so
0: have, yeah. Go ahead. I was no. just gonna say, like, have one day be lists basically. If, if like you're like, especially if you're like new to our templates, and you you load it up, and you're like, oh, I've got GPP, you know, like Tuesday, Thursday, or whatever. You could do lists one day, low intensity steady state. Which, if I'm hearing you correctly, would be more like RPE three four for mm-hmm. the same time variable. Let's say somewhere between ten to twenty minutes. And then for the secondary day, if you're like, but I really want to start kicking up my intensity. You could start as hits on the cycle, and then as you felt like your list was improving, like you are able to sustain less winded afterwards, so on and so forth, then you could switch over to high-intensity interval training with running.
2: Exactly. And, you know, if, you, if you're if you really, like, looking forward to building that we're running, like supplementing the running with uh, fitness walks. So just, like, a brisk pace, 20, 30 minutes. And you can always walk 10 minutes before and after your run just to get those extra, like, foot contacts to prepare yourself the stresses of running which are i think people just overlook that the stresses of running are be really a lot different than the stresses of resistance training Um mean even if you are doing resistance training it doesn't automatically qualify you for being able to like go out there and do an rp10 run every time
0: yeah 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 okay um, so i think yeah go ahead
2: No, I just think, yeah, getting comfortable with the RP scale is important. I think pacing can be confusing for people in the beginning because they just automatically think like, oh, I need to run at X pace because I don't know why. You know, because it seems athletic. Pacing is going to be a little bit more of a conversation for the more intermediate, uh, I would say, athlete. Um, And then heart rate is really accessible these days with most wearables if you have one. It can be easy to track where you're at, and I think a good rule of thumb, it can get a little bit more into the nuance, but staying for your easy running, staying below 80% of your max heart rate would be an easy kind of rule of thumb.
0: And then, so give people like a quick rundown on calculating target heart rate.
2: Yeah, so the, probably the easiest way to do it would be 220 minus your age, and that'll give you an estimate of what your max heart rate is. Now you could actually test it by doing you know, an all-out effort, or you can estimate it by doing like a tempo run, and that'll give you um, some kind of threshold. But uh, really the easiest way is 220 minus your age. That'll estimate your max heart rate, and then you can just take percentages of that number and I would say your easy work's gonna probably wanna sit between 60 and 80 percent of yeah. that max heart rate. And then that's where you like your three and four runs live. And then when you see those numbers go up, then your RPs will go up accordingly. Should yeah. um yeah. I so, I I do something where I'll like <clears throat> I'll go on Strava. And I'll just like creep on people's heart rate uh, that I follow <laughs> just because I'm, I'm interested in kind of like what people do as training and like what, what, yeah. do, what do their uh, metrics kind of reflect. And not to say that heart rate is the only thing you should use to anchor RPE, but it'll tell you something. You know, if, if someone's running at 180 uh, beats per minute heart rate for like six miles, like uh, I'm, I'm skeptical. Yeah,
1: yeah, because like... <laughs>
0: because <laughs> i'm i'm 35 so like 220 minus 35 is a, a, an estimated max heart rate of 185 so like my 80 percent which is kind of towards the high end of what we're talking about would be 148 so if you looked at my training log for my heart rate and you were like mike you were 165 like this whole time like clearly i'm not meeting the prescription right that's kind of what you're saying
2: yeah i would say like okay you're probably overshot there and that's we can anchor that as your rp6 run you know, And then let's like, let's, let's trim. And if you, if you had a pace for that round, let's say like, oh yeah, I ran that at like a nine minute mile, but great. Let's, let's kick you back to like 11 minutes a mile and see what happens. You know, and Which, I think that could help maybe anchor it just like lifting. Like, you know, if, yeah. if you took your single day and you hit an absolute grinder and you know, your, your face turned a different color uh, tomato. Yeah. Maybe next time we do 10% less and we see if that's a truer number for you.
0: Which I think a lot of people, at least like anecdotally, that's where they, like, they're like they just going to go out of the gate too hot and they're just like pushing the barrier. So this kind of helps give us some guidelines to try to follow and regulate uh, a little bit more.
2: Yeah, I, I just think like because running so accessible and I, maybe it's this culture around it that you feel like you need to have done something where you're like huffing and puffing at the end to yeah. quantify some kind of workout. I just think it... It can be easier than that. And it's more enjoyable.
0: I don't know. I think (laughs) people forget, like, you are still getting benefits. Like, I had this conversation all the time when I owned a CrossFit gym. Like, folks were like, I have to just feel like someone kicked the shit out of me. And I'm like, you know, you really don't have to take it there to still get all the positive (laughs) benefits of being physically active. And, in fact, you may enjoy this a little bit more if you don't do that to yourself.
2: Yeah. And I think that's what's impressive. And I think what I've heard, too, in the running community um for more like you know general kind of like popular uh coaching is like it's not how fast you get run it's like how long can you sustain that pace like everyone can sprint down the street but it's like how long can you sustain a pace without really like you know looking like you're working too hard um so you know just how everyone's like very impressed by a 700 700 pound deadlift i'm Equally as impressed by someone who can, you know, run six-minute miles and their heart rate stays in the 130s, and it's like, you know, they're barely breathing. I'm like, that seems superhuman to me, but, but whatever. Yeah, I do yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All
3: right,
0: so I think uh, we're on to... Well, I, do you want to go ahead and go to questions at this point? Because I think it'll answer yeah. a lot of these, like, other considerations and stuff.
2: Yeah, I, I wanted to set that up because I think then... That's an easy place to start when it comes to the, some of these questions that we got.
0: Okay. So uh, I'm going to go through these and just like pick some. Mm-hmm. But the first one is, when and th- we curated these from Michael Amato and I's uh, Instagram accounts. So uh, anytime we post that up on Instagram asking for questions, make sure you submit them because it, it will most likely show up on the podcast. When is discomfort something to take seriously versus a sign you need to rest uh, are overworked? And this Mm -hmm. is from Tom. I think this is a good one.
2: Yeah. This is a discussion I have, I think, a lot of times in the clinic, uh, just in the context of exercise. So in a broader way, I look at a lot of stuff as like, do you feel like you're doing productive training or not? And how how does the sensations you're feeling correlate with that? Because if I'm getting a pattern of symptoms increase, throughout the workout linger into the next workout affect ADLs you know affect the next workout programming um, that's where I think we probably need to modify something but if it's something that's transient and goes away and seems to improve after you're finished the workout and is maybe like the same or less next time then that may be more okay we're like sticking to the plan but keeping an eye on it. Um, But I'm really looking for those patterns of like, are we trending up and is it affecting the next either activity or the next workout? And that's kind of like my rule of thumb when it comes to like, is it something that's productive or is it starting to be a little bit counterproductive?
1: I tend to like to ask the ultimate auto regulation question. Do you think this is a good idea? (laughs) And I'll have someone, you know, go through their programming and what they're feeling and then what their plan is moving forward do you think this is a good idea? And you can really kind of tease out a lot of that question or uh, like with the answer to that. Cause you'll get the, well, I mean, okay. It's not a good idea. That's, that's what we needed to know right there. I feel like that's the
0: ultimate parenting question. Like your kid (laughs) says, I'm
1: going to go do this. What do you think, dad?
0: And Derek's just like, do you think that's a good idea? Which is like that, Oh shit moment. Like maybe I shouldn't do this.
1: Well, you know, all of this, like our currency is advice and it really is like what the people will do with that advice. And a lot of times, you know, if it's a good idea or not, it's just, you're kind of looking. In fact, I would say a lot of the questions we get, people kind of know what our answer is going to be, Yeah, but it's just having that conversation and working through it. So I think sometimes it, the onus does need to be put back on the athlete of, okay, this is your plan. Do you think this is in your best interest?
0: Yeah, it's super individualistic, like a lot of times, like I'm similar to a motto in the sense of, is this super transient? Was it one session? Is this something that's just been an off week? Is this like for three months into this and it's been consistent and performance is worsening? That's going to change like my recommendation, super transient stuff, probably not going to alter a whole lot of things. But if it turns into persistent weeks to months, I'm much more inclined to be like, let's start making more invasive changes. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that kind of covers that second question. Uh, The third question is a little more involved. How do you know what level of pain is safe, i.e. stress fracture?
1: I would say it really is contingent upon the diagnosis because if, I were suspicious of something in the relative energy deficiency syndrome, my safety net is going to be a lot shallower um, yeah. just because it, it comes down to like the how does this affect my treatment standpoint. And when you're looking at the common running injuries of like tendinopathy, patellofemoral pain syndrome, within reason, it, it's kind of a no harm, no foul. You're, you're not going to cause like long-term damage to things whereas like continuing to run on a stress fracture especially something like a metatarsal stress fracture yeah it, you know you can set yourself up for some negative outcomes out of that so a lot of it really is contingent uh, upon where my suspicion of differential diagnosis is where my s- suspicion of athlete you know, or it's not even suspicion because at that point I'm asking very explicit questions about nutrition and, you know, menstruation things that I really need the information that's going to guide how cool I am letting someone kind of take the reins.
0: Yeah. And would you say that would be a scenario where, okay, we've identified a stress fracture, like a metatarsal stress fracture, and it means that we need to minimize that type of low uh, magnitude cyclical loading, but then is there a conversation you would have about alternative loading? Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: And, you know, I think it's worth touching on here. My utter hatred of the alter G and and, (laughs) and, an alter G is uh, what it's stupid in the entire name because they call it an anti-gravity treadmill, but basically it's a, a pressurized treadmill that takes some of the weight off of you as you run. And going back to the, Crux of the question that you asked, Mike, about different types of loading. If I need to shut a runner down, I don't want to dangle the carrot and let them go back to doing the thing that hurt them originally too soon. So, you know, if you talk about it from just signaling, it's like, okay, well, it's okay to run here so I can go run. No, that's not what I said yet. So we need to keep addressing, you know, some of the heuristics for our resistance training and whatever other training modalities we're doing. I understand some people listening to this are probably in love with the alter G cool. You do. you. (laughs) I do not think it is worthwhile. I threatened to throw our one when I was at Stanford children's out the window for the entire three years I was there.
0: But we may find other things like, uh, you know, you can, Bench press and overhead press and ro- there's so many other options of things we could do, even if we're having to offload a particular area.
1: Or even, you know, I've had a lot of stress fractures that we're sitting there and, and even when we're in the non-weight bearing stage doing some things like pistol squats and leg press and knee extensions and yeah. hamstring curls on the other leg. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. so it, and I think too often we are predisposed to seeing this injury as that's the tissue we need to focus on and nothing but that tissue, and we forget that there's an entire athlete often getting out of shape in front of us as they're going through the rehab process.
0: I think a lot of peoples at, at least in the the cairo world, what I hear i'm not i' care if same for you guys, but like when you're billing to insurance for therax, it's like why did you work the left leg when they're symptomatic on the right?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So
0: it's like, how do I explain my clinic time to an insurance reimbursement or an insurer of why they should pay me for working another area, which it gets into interesting discussions.
1: You start citing all the contralateral limb training stuff. Uh, I mean, yeah, it, at, it, it, at this point, like that's a hard one for insurance to argue with just because there is so much information out there on contralateral limb training, uh, Basically, even I, I'm pretty sure there's some decent studies now on like upper extremity training, slowing down atrophy of lower limbs during non-weight bearing. Like, you know, mm-hmm. there is the systemic effect of the training modality as well. Now, that's not carte blanche to go do a bunch of stupid stuff just for the sake of, you know, calling it a, a total body program. Right. Get paid.
2: Yeah, I guess tricky. But if you got to start throwing in citations in your notes,
0: go for it. Yeah, I've definitely done that. Yeah. So. No. Uh, shin splints. So, um, if you, what, what is the, uh, actual name for shin splints guys?
2: I mean, I've seen medial tibial stress syndrome before. Yeah. I don't know if that's like accepted vernacular still. Yeah.
0: That's usually how it shows up in the research lit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the next question is on, and we got a lot of questions on shin splints, so it's a pretty popular one. What are they, which there we go. We just gave you like the official research term name and what to do once they pop up. Yeah,
2: I think this is where you can get into some of the programming talk, at least in the beginning. Um, Because you're looking at probably an eccentric overload to either the anterior tib or the posterior tib that you're not tolerating well. And so are you running too hard, too quickly, too fast, you know, like out of the gate? In, in terms of what you can handle from intensity. So I, you know, I would love to see what their programming looks like and are they actually doing enough easy running. Yeah, And then you can also start talking about, this is where you can dip your toe into some of the biomechanics and um, are they essentially overstriding? Um, so are they landing with their foot more out in front of them, which is probably going to cause a larger degree of ankle range of motion to have to occur after contact. So you're the easy way to think about it is like, are you kind of reaching with your foot landing with your heel? And then your foot has to like control more range of motion until it hits the ground, which would impart more effort on the muscles to decelerate the foot. Um, so something really easy to help accommodate more stress could be just again, like running slower because then people tend to not, at least a more novice rider tends to not overstart as much, keep their foot a little bit more underneath them, and then they can probably tolerate the load a little bit. And you can start talking a little bit maybe about cadence in the situation, but I wouldn't get too deep into that until I was looking at their programming.
0: Yeah, and I also like to do um, kind of similar for tendinopathy stuff, just like eccentric overload to the anterior tibialis. So I'll okay. do like, you know, weighted dorsiflexion stuff with them. A gem I worked for. Uh, when I was at USC, we actually had uh, the little thing that you like slip your foot in, it has a pad on it, and you could do any load plates on the side. I, I guess I just called it weighted dorsiflexion, which was pretty cool to have. That was cool. We were trying to
2: mess around with like closed chain ankle dorsiflexion of the clinic the other day, like anchoring your foot underneath something and then like kind of falling backwards. <laughs> just trying to come up with some different things. But yeah, I'll I'll uh, I'll tackle that sometimes.
1: Derek, anything to add on that? Uh, I do think this is one of those instances where some discussion about cadence and stride, I would just echo what Omado is saying. Um, if you look at, and we probably don't have the, in fact, I know we don't have the bandwidth to go into true running technique conversation in this podcast, but if you look at it from its simplest high yield fixes or adjustments if you can get someone to land more underneath themselves and not overstride, as he mentioned and then often if you can take someone's cadence up a little bit more it does have some impact on that just from a, a technical standpoint and you can sometimes get some symptom relief out of that yeah it's and by like, caden- oh, yeah.
0: cadence you guys mean step frequency
2: exactly yeah so mm-hmm. it, it's using a simple variable to maybe affect a more complex uh, like effect. So instead of like trying to give them 10 different cues on how to land with their foot underneath them, if you think they're taking like, for example, if they are taking like 150 steps per minute and you increase them to 160, then you're having to essentially like turn your feet over faster and, and at the same speed. So you're not telling them to speed up their pace. You're saying keep the same pace but increase the step rate, and the easy way to do that is like by matching your step rate to like a metronome. So just turn on a metronome to one, you know, some degree of increase, maybe like three to five percent, and then you're gonna automatically get them to land with their foot on, more underneath them because they have to turn their feet over quicker.
0: Hmm. So all right, so that is shin splints. Let me scroll through here.
2: Which I'll add as a quick caveat seems also be important for patellofemoral pain syndrome. So there's some literature to support that because it changes the load at the knee.
0: Plantar fasciopathy is very similar to teninopathy. We got a question on that. I would just refer to our teninopathy guide that's up on the website now as far as can be a lot of discussion on programming oh here's a good one when should you consider surgery for something like hagloons deformity Haglund's. i'm gonna say it how i want derek <laughs> <laughs>
1: um so a Haglund's deformity is basically like a bony enlargement on the back of the heel and once again like it's you start talking about Achilles tendinopathy or adaptation to load. And sometimes you'll hear things delineated between a mid substance Achilles tendinopathy and insertional tendinopathy. And then sometimes you'll also have it manifest as basically a a large growth on the back of the heel. And basically all they go in and and do is a bit of a debridement there. So it's, is what it is.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting conversation because the ones I've seen, it's like, this could have been here, you know, your middle age, this could have been here your whole life. Like, why are we now symptomatic and hedging our bets that we need to excise this? So it it certainly is like, to me, individual case-by-case basis. And what have you tried leading up to the point of making the surgical decision and so on and so forth? Amato, anything to add to that one?
2: No, I like just learned what that was, so... I'm good.
0: Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> I had I remember when I saw a case with that, and I was like, "What? I've not heard of this." And I had to go read. Um, the next question is thoughts on running after anterior cervical disectomy and fusion of C six C seven.
1: I mean, if Peyton Manning um, could play football with it, I think you can go for a run.
2: Yeah, like yeah. It's, it's obviously you'll need some questions on what they were doing prior. You know, like their training history, but. Like I I kind of mentioned in the beginning, like don't undervalue the benefit of like walking. So I'm sure there's some kind of low volume running versus high volume walking we can do, at least in the beginning. Um, Yeah. Where do
1: we start conversation?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and this obviously is like case context specific. Like are you day one post-op? Where are we at in this process? Are you years removed from it? Which then I'm much more inclined to be like, yeah, you're, you know, we're good to go. Let's just figure out tolerable doses, entry point, and build from there. All right. Let's go to a fun conversation. Uh, the header for this whole group of uh, questions, injury risk reduction, performance, and load management. Is there a proper way to calculate load for running besides some sort of percentage of pacing?
2: Yeah. So I'll go back to like my original statement of, I think, looking at time spent in different intensity zones. So instead of like thinking of like, oh, my 5K PR pace is this, I'll just take a percentage of it, which is fine. But people don't regularly have that data available to them. So I think time spent in easy versus moderate versus hard can be a great way of to seeing where you're at. And I, based on some of the literature, it seems like polarized training has a little bit better of an effect on performance, which means like, again, like 80% of your volume being easy and then 15, 10 to 15% being kind of more hard and like 5
0: to 10% being more moderate. Okay. Uh, I think, I'm trying to remember which citation I read that you like cited that gave us to read, uh, but they talked about AC ratios, which I thought was interesting Um, In this regard, but I think I would be a little more okay with the utilization of AC ratios here, just being a component of such an RPE times duration, Mm -hmm. much more so than I am with like resistance training focus, which is at some point we'll actually have to do a podcast on that. But I could, I am still not a fan of AC ratios from the mythical sweet spot kind of approach that people tend to get sucked into. But I would be more okay if you wanted to track that for the running population of like rating each run and then how long did I run, which is mm-hmm. going to be that conversation on volume and then tracking that, just minimizing like, uh, you know, really quote unquote ridiculous spikes along the way. Yeah, you can
2: totally, you can totally calculate some arbitrary units and go from there. And yeah, I, I would think I'm almost more conservative with just kind of sticking with volumes for a little bit longer with running and progressing a little bit more slowly because I think the ceiling... Is a little
1: bit lower for people. I mean, I would just probably go back and say a plan will beat no plan nine times out of yeah. 10. So, mm-hmm. whatever method, like it's not great, but it's better than nothing.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and just to what Amato was saying, like track, you know, volume, track intensity, track frequency, have some way of trying to. Uh, both rate your subjective perception of your training and then objectively tracking that and couple those together is probably your best bet in the long run for this process. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And I think we just knocked out like five questions. Yeah,
2: we did. did. (laughs) 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 Should we talk talk about
0: shoes? Yeah, let's do running shoes and then we'll kind of close out with probably biomechanics. Uh, So shoes is very open. Do running shoes make a difference?
2: No, not as much as you think. I think I think the only thing we have to go off of is um, the weight of the shoe. So as long as it's not like over like if each shoe is not over a pound, I think it's like what the one study showed, then it shouldn't really detract from your running economy. Then other than that, like um, a shoe that's comfortable and allows you to run in the style that you self-optimize in is the running shoe for you.
0: I will link all of the citations. There was maybe you guys remember, there's a really good paper. I hadn't read that. I liked a lot just because I don't read a ton of running research, but they specifically talked about like, yeah, pretty much what matters with shoes is find something that you think is comfortable. You as the individual. Well, what do you remember what article that was?
1: Yeah, it was, was, um, there's a review by Nig on it and it's where they kind of challenge the shoe paradigm and turn it into the preferred movement path and comfort filter. Yes. Yeah, they go over the fact of like there's just not a lot of research on a lot of the tropes that have been said over the years of like Mm -hmm. increased pronation. We need a stability shoe. And, you know, a lot of this stuff just doesn't really hold weight when put to actual research methods. And it does come down a lot to what you feel comfortable running in.
0: Yeah. And I really like the self-optimization aspect of that paper, especially for our novice runners. Uh, and it's exactly what we talk about with resistance training is like you'll just self organize and find the most optimal way to complete the movement in the beginning stages. And then we can kind of get into the nitty gritty down the road for performance standards. And so, in like the number one, you know, correlate to that of self optimizing and organizing to complete the task is experience. So just continuing to practice and train.
2: Yeah. And that's again, I'll make another case for like easy pace running. It's like if you're not really fatiguing too hard and you get a lot of volume like running easy pace, you're going to get naturally just better at running from like just practice.
0: Which I think is a good segue to, to biomechanics because I, when I read this, I forget which article it was. I've read too many at once at this point, <laughs> but um, it made me think of when I was reading shoulder lit on looking at scapulohumeral rhythm, which was obviously like that changes with fatigue, which is exactly what you see with running biomechanics is as you become more fatigued, you alter your mechanics. Mm-hmm. So, Uh, I think it's a good like jump into this section and the kind of one I want to lead with, because I came in hot on Instagram with so many people run with incorrect form. What's the best resource for people to use to help people correct it?
2: (laughs) Yes. So, yeah, so there's a, there's a paper that I linked and it's essentially a big review article and it's called like, is there an economical running technique, a review of modifiable biomechanical factors affecting running economy. And, the big conclusion is that people will self-optimize to a preferred technique and uh, stride length range that like has a 3% error on it, essentially. So you could probably alter their technique to make, or you can alter the technique to make them more economical and running and more economical and running means that they're able to like essentially run at a faster pace at a similar VO2. And 3% is maybe enough for someone who's really competitive, but you know, a 3% difference for your average recreational runner might not make a huge difference. And really what they're talking about probably the most is like stride length. So like again, shortening stride length a little bit and increasing turnover will, might give you that little 3% improvement. But trying to change anything else, you might just be getting lost in the weeds.
0: Well, there was also, like, another side of that coin, right? Like, a certain change resulted in a 6% decrease in performance. Am yeah. I misremembering that? No, yeah. By by
2: essentially throwing too much at them or trying to change too much in one direction, you're going to decrease performance, at least in that short term, I believe.
0: You mean, like, yeah. everything
1: we know about motor learning?
0: Exactly right. Like you, you can't have too many inputs in, in into the system and expect that that's just going to somehow equate to all positive output.
1: Yeah.
2: What I what I really liked about that article was they talked about heel strike versus forefoot strike. Yes. And I think by changing someone from a rear foot to a forefoot strike, you de- you decrease their running economy.
0: That was it. Yeah. Yeah,
2: and by changing someone from a forefoot strike to a rear foot strike, you actually didn't affect running economy. Yep. And if it say, um, Yeah, so interestingly, habitual forefoot strikers can change to a rear foot strike without detrimental consequences of running economy. While but an if, imposed forefoot strike in a habitual rear foot striker produces worse running economy at slow and medium speeds, which yes. is where you're doing most of your
0: work. Which this made me think of. So I'm notoriously a heel striker uh, for as long as I remember, but I did a CrossFit endurance cert, and they taught pose running, and I was switched to forefoot. And now I'm thinking back on that and, like, that probably wasn't the
1: best decision to force myself Just into like that. 2012? Yeah. Well, uh,
0: 2014, I want to say. Oh, you were linked like the that. game,
1: man. Pose was, yeah. like, it was the Hansel of the running world back in uh, 2011, 2012. <laughs> yeah, so I was
0: doing, like, the figure four, like, in pose position, fall forward, strike, like, yeah. Holding the gun There's up in the
1: air. Yeah, it's, dude, Yeah. God, that just gave me nightmare flashbacks. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Flashbacks. (laughs) (laughs) Well, But part of this that that is worth mentioning, like, there are a lot of camps in the biomechanical community that would tell you that this matters a lot. And that's good for them, but the research doesn't really support it nearly as heavily as what we put on. There's a a systematic review by, and I'm sure I'm going to butcher it and I apologize, SACINS that looked at biomechanical risk factors associated with running related injuries. And what they really concluded out of it was biomechanical variables are sparse and inconsistent with findings largely dependent on the population and injuries being studied. So, you know, it's, the confidence with which people will hang on what is good running form or what is, you know, something that will increase your running economy versus the actual actionable component of that. There's a gap there. And I, we actually, once again, to get our off, off, uh, microphone conversations, discuss this in terms of like, who do we think is more hung up on technique, runners or lifters and. I would say it is runners, and it's been perpetuated by this, like, there is this very ideal way to run. But one of the most beautiful photographs it was from, I believe, the 2008 Olympics of the 10K, and they showed the heel strike patterns of the Olympic 10K and just the overall variability, not even within athletes, but within the same athlete over the course of the race, and showed a high degree of variability there. Now, like once again, you're trying to extrapolate from a small sample size there, but I think if you are taking a snapshot of the elite of the elite and you're seeing that degree of variability, it certainly throws a bit of a wrench. In us saying there is only one way with which to accomplish a task. Plus, you know, I'm I'm sure I used to know how many steps you averaged over a 10K, but to really expect all however many thousand of those to be the exact same Mm -hmm. is just farcical. Like, it's just, like, just even face validity of that makes no sense whatsoever.
2: Yeah, like... No, like, yeah, you're... Yeah, you're devaluing variability within the system that's self-optimizing. Like it, you know, it's like everything we know about motor learning.
1: There's a lot so of layers. stuff like it's the equivalent like if you go to this like huge biomechanical analysis like it's the equivalent of like ripping off a Maserati hood ornament and putting it on your 1986 Toyota Corolla. Like cool. Yeah. Still not a Maserati. Like there are other yeah. things you need to upgrade before we start talking about the hood ornament.
0: Mm-hmm. Which is why we go to like programming so often. It's because it's like, and a lot of times when I talk to folks, like there is no structure, there, there is no plan. It's just like, oh, I just go run. Um, yeah. And so that's why it's one of our starting points.
2: The, the fruit hangs low, I think. You know yeah. like yeah oh
0: I just go out for a couple of
2: five mile runs if I ask someone like what their programming looks like.
0: And, you know, oh, and yeah. it's like saying like oh
2: yeah I just go in and hit a couple heavy squats. Which yeah. again like and that might work for a while, but if you're having problems or you want to progress then that's when programming comes into into question.
0: So I think that answers the next question was does heel striking increase risk of injury to my knowledge we don't have supportive data to make that statement. Um, do you guys have anything on that? Yeah no I, yeah i wouldn't support yep. that um we already answered number three uh oh this is a good one uh as someone who worked at a job where i did motion capture gate analysis and then recommended a specific shoe uh does overpronation supination at the foot cause pain is it worth buying shoes for this no I agreed suppose.
2: Yeah, I think we know that the shoes that claim to do that don't do that and I don't think we have any research to really say that we can measure it and then that it leads to
0: injury. Just go find a shoe that's comfortable and get to running. It's going to be okay. Do I need to ru- oh this is uh, this is a good one. Do I need to run backwards to balance out the forwards?
1: Yes. Yeah, that's an emphatic yes. <laughs> A, that's probably you, my favorite question we've gotten in a while. Yeah, it's like you, if you have, like when i was growing up uh the joke was always if you had a leg length discrepancy just go walk the other way on the hill yeah
0: exactly yeah yeah <laughs> i feel like you have to do the beer mile like just running backwards though yeah. that, if i'm gonna do it that's how i would do it
1: it's i mean I, god you want to talk about some vestibular overload let's drink and run backwards I, I would, <laughs> I, that's perfect I, I would actually watch that sport here we go, Olympics. All right. Um, I mean, speed walking's a thing. Backwards that's running. True. It, it is. is. Yeah, it yeah, some sport. NFL cornerbacks, and you probably be there already.
0: Uh, I think we answered the rest of them. So let's close out with concurrent training, and I think like this really hits home for our usual audience. For, for most yeah. of our folks, they're you know primarily focused on resistance training and specific a lot of times powerlifting. And so, Mm -hmm. but, you know, we're advocates of like still meeting national physical activity guidelines. There is still evidence to say you should still go do cardiorespiratory conditioning work in addition to your resistance training. And so I think this is really where this kind of conversation fits in. Um, Let's go to, can you gain muscle if you're gaining weight whilst resistance training and running? Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I've, I've, I
2: took a little bit of a deep dive into this like in, back in like April and May. I actually had a, it's a whole book where it's like about concurrent training. Um, I'll pull it up in the meantime. But essentially what you see is a minor difference in the increase of hypertrophy and strength in someone who does like an elite volume of running. And we're talking like 90 plus miles a week compared to someone who does less than that, but that the elite runner is still gaining muscle. So they're just gaining muscle at a lesser rate. And when you look at the research, most people aren't hitting those elite totals of running volume. So you're going to get stronger. You're going to gain muscle at a very similar rate to someone who doesn't run. And if you were like, you really cared about your quad volume, like, your, your like quad circumference and you wanted to really hypertrophy your quads, then I would uh, suggest biking. But if you love running, it's not going to take any, pretty much anything away from you. And in terms of hypertrophy and strength, maybe some top end power. But again, like if you're not an Olympic shot putter, I wouldn't really uh, value that.
0: It's not going to kill my gains. No. All right. <laughs> Um, crossover adaptations for running and lifting
2: this is interesting um, I was thinking about this before because like yeah, what is the value and I would beyond the health benefits right of doing conditioning and resistance training like will conditioning help my resistance training or like what I think what I think of more of is like if I do conditioning will it help my powerlifting total yeah um, I don't know <laughs> I would think like it would make your sessions more tolerable in terms of
1: your overall
2: conditioning level.
1: Um, I hear Turkish get-ups are the only thing that can help a powerlifting total for concurrent training. That's true. I yeah. do
0: I do program those, and I usually get the what-the-hell-man type response. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, it's actually funny. So I, I started working with a new coach, um, and uh, it, our, our readers are probably familiar with them, but it's Data-Driven Strength. And we just had a podcast on tweaking like programming with the valuing some lower rpe training and he's been telling me like oh because you run i think you'll have an easier time like auto regulating rest time on some of these um multiple sets at a lower rpe so like for instance like i'll have maybe five sets of three, but the RPE is like a five. And he's like, "Yeah, you just auto-regulate your rest time. Like if you're, if you feel conditioned then you need the rest like for only 30 to 45 seconds and you can maintain that low RPE, go for it. So, you know, I don't know if that helps me as much as I did if I hadn't been running, but it's an interesting thought experiment.
1: So, I think there's, go ahead, Derek. So there's, there's a good bit to this question. One, like, Running and lifting. Like, it, it, there's good evidence that even at the elite level, like, there's a couple studies where they looked at elite level cyclists and had them lift and they had a better kick at the end. We don't have quite as much evidence to say the other way around, but now we're talking the elite level. For your average person, this still, I would say, goes back to you need to be an athlete as much as you need to be a runner or a lifter. And so, there, like, you want those concomitant adaptations out of it. And like, if, if you look at the vast majority of studies on just, like, physical activity and health, there needs to be some variety in your program. So the overall heuristic is, like, don't do the same exercise over and over and over and over again. Like, you know, we've joked yeah. that, believe it or not, there is different exercises other than a squat, bench, and deadlift. But in the same regard, like, hey, uh, you can hop on the rower every now and then skier works well if you really want to have a good time get on an assault bike and even then like 30 minutes on an assault bike is completely different than a one minute max test you know it's we tend to put these in these very broad buckets without like appreciating the even within running and lifting there are massive spectrums of what constitutes each
0: i feel like our next barbell medicine shirt should just say variety is the spice of life
1: it's I want you have your no silly bullshit. I just want one that says do different shit. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I would buy it. Yeah, yeah. All right, last question, and we'll close it out. Does Barbell Medicine have anyone who currently does endurance or concurrent training?
1: I would think able. Amato and I both would put ourselves in that camp right now.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, same. I I pretty much do. Uh, I mean, I specifically do concurrent because I do. One to two resistance training focus exercises at the beginning and then i close out with conditioning work which may be less or maybe hit depending on the day
1: yeah I mean, yes yeah, so i'm currently uh, right
2: now, yeah you, you go first eric
1: but uh, so it's thursday and i am t- 27k meters on the rower end of the week there you go so you know it, it's like in Most of that isn't at any breakneck speed. And even going back to what Amato was saying earlier about using time versus distance as a variable, like, I was a collegiate rower, and the hardest part about getting back into rowing was getting on and being used to my 500 meter split. So finally, I just converted my variable to calories because I have no idea what that means in terms of pacing. So I could just zone out and row. But well, because yeah. if not, like I would come out at like a row in a 5K at like a 205 pace when I first started getting back into it, which is like over 20 seconds slower than I was doing in college and start creeping down and then like DNF myself because I just couldn't keep up the one fifty pace the whole time.
2: Yeah. That's hilarious.
1: (laughs) But I mean, it's, it's, but it's so analogous to lifting though, too, of like, well, I know I could, you know, pick something deadlift 500 pounds. Should I do it though? And then you go do it. And then you can't train for the next three days because you're shot. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, well, yeah, when this goes back to, like, exactly what I mentioned earlier. Do you think that was a good idea? <laughs> Hell no. like,
0: right, we're human beings. Like, we probably say, like, no, that's not a good idea, but we're going to do it anyways. Like, yeah. we all do that, so.
2: Yeah. yeah, and I'm just currently lifting three times a week in the kind of powerlifting style um, and running close to two hours a week at this point. I was doing a little bit more early in the summer, but I've kind of kicked back some volume to help control for some tendinopathy issues. But I track it by time because like, yeah, like where I was doing maybe up to 15 miles a week over the summer, I'm now back towards like a eight to nine mile range based on the time. And I'm happy with that. I just want to be able to do it four times a week and go from there.
0: So, yeah, the answer to that question is yes. Uh, I think that's it. That's uh, all we got time for today. We've covered a lot of stuff as it relates to running. Um, obviously, give the citations a read if you're able to and interested in that. I would check out Derek's uh, series on resistance training for the endurance athlete on our website as well. Um, and then if you got questions, you can always send us a message. Check us out at barbellmedicine.com. And thanks for tuning in.